If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up and uh, Greg Rotewall will run one by to you. Luke, chapter 16. Just reading a few verses today, verses 14 through 18. Luke, chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. When you get there, before we pray, I just want you to look at those verses, verses 14 to 18. If you happen to see a little subtitle stuck in there somewhere, uh, just be careful of those subtitles. Those subtitles were not in the original manuscripts. People supplied those later. But sometimes what those subtitles do is they make you think, oh, this is a totally new thing I'm going into here. I don't think that's the case as we read through this passage. So if you have a subtitle in the mix, just be careful of that thing and kind of move it out of the way in your mind. Luke chapter 16, we'll start in verse 14. Let's pray before we read. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we just look to you again today for grace. Father, we don't come to you today to pay you back for anything you've done for us. We can never pay you back. That's not why we gather on Sunday mornings. We actually come looking for more. Uh, We come looking for more grace today. We come looking for more mercy through Jesus Christ. We come looking for joy in you, Father, today. We come looking for comfort and and, and strength and and, uh, power today, Father. We we come to you looking for help because you're the great one. We don't come to give you anything. We come as the needy ones looking to receive from you. And Lord, we believe that as we come to you for help today, you are glorified in that. Uh, You are shown to be the great, all-sufficient one. Uh, You really are. So we just thank you, and that's how we come to you now in your word. And we just pray, Father, you would use what is uh, a bit of a difficult text here for our eternal good. Lord, will you please help me as I speak, and will you please give us hearts to receive and comprehend and understand what you have for us here in your word. And we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Amen. At first glance... It is not easy to see how those verses there fit together. When you first look at those verses, they seem to me to just be a random collection of various things that Jesus taught at different times, and Luke didn't know where else to put them, so he just kind of threw them right there. This rebuke of the Pharisees, and then this teaching about the law, and then he just slides in this little thing on on, uh, marriage and divorce that Jesus taught at one point, kind of like cleaning your house before someone comes over. You put everything in its proper place, but you've got these three remaining things. You have no idea where to put them, so at 
at the last second, you just shove them all in the front closet and your house is now hypocritically clean and you can receive your guests. And man, it seems like Luke just kind of did that. Didn't know where else to put these things, so just threw them together right there. No real rhyme or reason, No, uh, just, a, just a random collection of disconnected things. And that's how some commentators treat this passage, and that's how some people preach it. I'm basically just going to preach a sermon on three individual things today, but I don't believe Luke was just throwing things together there. Back at the start of this book in Luke 1-3, Luke said he was writing an orderly account of Jesus' life and teaching. I think Luke put those things together there because they belong together. I think Luke put them together because Jesus put them together. Because Jesus taught them in that order, in this particular context. And I think Jesus did it because he wanted to teach these Pharisees here, and he wants also to teach us something specific. And what is it that Jesus is teaching us right there in this passage? It is difficult to know for sure. This is not an easy section to interpret. Nothing in Luke 16 is easy. But I think one of the things that Jesus may be teaching us here in this passage is how a person can be right with God how a person can be righteous or how a person can be in a right standing with God. How a person can be right with God. I think we can draw three main ideas out of that text there. All three of the ideas centering around that concept of righteousness or of being right with God. And the first thing we can see here, I believe, is this. Number one, Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. If you look at verse 14 again, Luke kind of sets things up for us first here. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. In the passage right before this one, which we looked at last Sunday, Jesus was teaching his disciples or his followers, most likely teaching a fairly large crowd of disciples, and he was teaching his disciples about earthly possessions and the proper management of earthly possessions as his disciples. He taught his disciples to be shrewd and eternally minded with their earthly possessions. He, he taught them to be faithful stewards of their earthly possessions, and he taught them to make sure that they were not mastered or controlled by their earthly earthly possessions. So all this teaching about earthly possessions, and apparently there were some Pharisees mixed in this crowd of disciples here, some Jewish religious leaders. These Pharisees overheard this teaching by Jesus, and Luke says here that they ridiculed Jesus for it. The Greek word there means that they literally turned up their noses at Jesus. They, they, they mocked or made fun of or showed contempt for Jesus. They may have audibly laughed at Jesus, kind of hidden in the crowd there. 
And why did the Pharisees ridicule Jesus for his teaching on earthly possessions? Luke gives us one reason right there. He says the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, man, they, they looked like great people on the surface. They followed all kinds of different, very holy-looking rules. They appeared to be worshiping the one true God of the Bible, but under the surface, their hearts were not good. Jesus says in Matthew 23 that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. On the surface, they're beautiful and ornate, very clean and white-looking. But under the surface, Jesus said they were full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Clean on the surface, but filthy under the surface in the heart. And one of the things that the Pharisees had going on down in their hearts was a love of money, a love of earthly possessions. Their hearts were greedy, covetous, constantly grasping for, for, for more and better earthly possessions. And they weren't just grasping for, for physical things like money and physical objects. They were also grasping for, for notoriety and reputation, grasping for the best seats in the synagogue, grasping for the praises of men out on the street corners. They're, they were grasping for all of these, these earthly things down in their hearts in Luke 11.39, Jesus said the Pharisees cleansed the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they were full of greed. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples here about the proper management of earthly possessions, I think the Pharisees, because of their love for earthly possessions, they were probably threatened by Jesus, and I think maybe also even a little convicted by Jesus, but then they just did what a lot of people do when they hear the word of God and they're threatened or convicted by it. They did not receive the message. They simply ridiculed the messenger. They mocked the preacher. If you can mock the preacher, you can avoid the message mocked and made fun of and laughed at Jesus. And man, once again here in the book of Luke, the Pharisees have now raised their heads in the proverbial foxhole. <laughs> I think the Pharisees would have been okay here if they would have just laid low and shut up. But the Pharisees could not do that ever. They rise up again here. They draw people's attention toward them. And so... Jesus now shifts his sights away from his disciples and he begins to address the Pharisees. If you look at verse 15 again, Jesus says, You, Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And it is difficult to know for sure exactly what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees right there. But he seems to be saying, at the very least, that the Pharisees did things for men rather than for God. 
They, they cared more about the opinion of men than they did about the opinion of God. Jesus says there that the Pharisees sought to justify themselves before men. And I think Jesus is simply saying there that the Pharisees worked really, really hard to appear righteous before men. They worked really, really hard to have other human beings look at them and say, Wow, those are some good men. Those are some holy men, some righteous men. Matthew Henry says about this right here, he says that the Pharisees made it their business to court the opinion of men. Man, the Pharisees cared a lot about the opinion of other people. They, they desperately wanted to gain a favorable verdict from other human beings. And man, I, I, think, I, think, I think in first century Israel, I think most people there probably gave the Pharisees a favorable verdict. Jesus says here that the Pharisees tried to justify themselves before men, and then Jesus goes right in and he says, and he talks about that which is exalted among men. And I think Jesus is probably talking there about the Pharisees again. I think Jesus is saying there that the Pharisees didn't just try to justify themselves before men. They didn't just try to appear righteous before men. No, I think Jesus is saying that they achieved what they were trying to do. Pharisees were exalted among all men in first century Israel. And that's one thing you hear Jesus saying about the Pharisees all through the book of Luke is that they exalted themselves. And I think they did it, in, in, I think, but I think in the minds of most first century Jews, I, I think the Pharisees were an exalted group of people. The Pharisees, out of all people in first century Israel, they were some of the most esteemed and well-respected, some of the most honored of all Israelites. <laughs> you and I read about the Pharisees in the Bible, and we know they're jerks, <laughs> because Jesus is constantly rebuking them for being jerks. So we read, oh, they're jerks. Jesus is rebuking them for jerks. But listen, the people in first century Israel they didn't typically view the Pharisees as jerks. Not at all. The Pharisees were considered to be some of the most righteous people around. And it makes sense. The Pharisees knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. The, the, the Pharisees worked hard to, to follow God's Old Testament laws. The, they worked hard to follow several thousand additional rabbinic laws. They fasted and tithed regularly. They prayed regularly, standing out on the street corners, their hands raised up in the air, calling out to God. They wore their clothes just the way the Old Testament prescribed. Phylacteries, tassels, head coverings, perfect. In the minds of most first century Jews, the Pharisees were not jerks. No, they were righteous men. <laughs> they were right with God. They were in a right standing with God. Man, if anybody's righteous, then it's got to be the Pharisees. The Pharisees, by and large, were highly exalted. Among all men in first century Israel, most people had a very high opinion of them. And I think Jesus wants these Pharisees here to know that God's opinion of them was a little different. 
And Jesus says to the Pharisees here, God knows your heart. Pharisees, you may appear righteous before men. You may be exalted among all men here in Israel. But God sees a little deeper than most men do. God sees the heart. It's a common theme in the Bible. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. And as human beings, we look at somebody else, we, we only see exterior. We, we see the way they look. We see their, their exterior actions, their, their exterior words. But God sees the heart. Our opinion of other people is based on what we see on the exterior. But God's opinion of people is based on what He sees in the heart. And because God can see the human heart, God's opinion of a person is many times very, very different than man's opinion of that person. And on many, many occasions, God's opinion of that person is way worse. Jesus says here that that which is exalted among men, that which is highly esteemed among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. And I believe that right there is a very direct warning to the Pharisees. You, you Pharisees may appear righteous before men. You may be exalted among all men here in Israel. But be very, very careful with that. Because on many, many occasions, that which is exalted among men in this world, the, the, the people who are often considered in this world by others to be good and holy and clean and righteous, the, the people in this world who receive a favorable verdict, those people who are highly exalted among men in this world, on many, many occasions, that which is exalted among men is an abomination to God. And I think Jesus is probably saying here, the majority of you Pharisees right now, Though you are revered here in Israel, you are an abomination to God. Highly exalted among men, but an abomination to God. Jesus is trying to speak truth to these men here because, listen, the majority of the Pharisees in, in Jesus' day, they, they were not truly righteous. Many people considered them to be, but they, they weren't. They, they, they didn't possess a genuine righteousness of the heart. They, they didn't possess a genuine righteousness that, that can only come as a gift from God and, and then manifests itself in genuine works of righteousness, in, in, in genuine works of love for God and for other people. They, they, it wasn't a genuine God-given righteousness that the Pharisees had. It was a self-righteousness, a superficial, man-made Righteousness, a righteousness built entirely on human effort, the works of the flesh, 
The Pharisees worked and they worked and they worked to establish their own righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 10.3. They worked hard to, to, to fabricate, to fabricate this, this outer garment of man-made righteousness. It looked like genuine righteousness to the naked eye, but it was simply a garment of self-righteousness. And underneath that cheap garment of self-righteousness was a filthy heart. Clean on the surface, but filthy under the surface. And man, that same type of self-righteousness, that same type of self-righteousness exists in our world today. Sits in a lot of church services around the world every Sunday. Man, and, and here's the scary thing about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness in our world is oftentimes exalted among men. Self-righteousness, on many occasions, it will be commended, or it will be admired, or it will be praised by other human beings. Man, if you, if you just try hard to follow the rules in our society, if you also maybe try to follow some sort of religious rules in our society... If you're basically just a nice person and, and, and you don't yell at your neighbors or, or beat your kids or, or kick your dog, if, if you work your job faithfully and you pay your taxes and you mow your lawn and you recycle, if you just basically live a peaceful life in our society, you will most likely be exalted among men. Many, many people will probably look at you and say, now that is a good person. A really good person. Oh, man, look at that. And I don't know if there even is a God, but man, if there is a God, then wow, that God is probably really pleased with that person. Very good and holy and righteous man. But here's the thing. Man's opinion is fallible. God sees the heart. God sees the human heart. And if the heart underneath that righteous looking exterior is filthy in his eyes, then that righteousness is nothing but self-righteousness. And God is not actually pleased. Self-righteousness is pleasing to human beings. And self-righteousness is an absolute abomination to God. Because it is sinful human beings exalting themselves before a holy God. Look at me. It's an abomination before God. So that's the first thing we can see here, I believe, a self-righteousness in these Pharisees here. And a second thing we can see here, I believe, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. The Pharisees were self-righteous people. <laughs> and I think Jesus is now going to strip away that external garment of self-righteousness and he is going to show them that they are actually 
unrighteous. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus now says this to the Pharisees. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. (laughs) And man, it is not easy to see the connection. Between what, uh, between what Jesus just said about the Pharisees and that right there. Man, it sounds like Jesus just started talking about something entirely different right there. You know what Jesus sounds like right there? He sounds like my youngest son at the, at the dinner table. Talking about one subject, one moment, man, as fast as could be, fervent about one subject. And I mean mid-sentence, an entirely different subject. And bam, didn't miss a beat. Football to Buzz Lightyear in about one second. And you just follow along like, sweet. Buzz Lightyear's apparently playing football. I like it. That's good. Man, it seems like Jesus just did that. All of a sudden here, he's talking about the Pharisees, rebuking the Pharisees, self-righteous stuff here, and, and all of a sudden he seems to be talking about an entirely new subject, no connection whatsoever between those two parts. That's why some people will preach this as independent things, but I believe there is a connection, a very logical connection. Let me just quickly work through what Jesus just said there in verses 16 to 17, and then I'll tell you what I think Jesus was saying to the Pharisees there. Jesus starts with this. Just Let's just walk through the parts. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And Jesus is basically just explaining to the Pharisees there what had just recently taken place in redemptive history. What had just recently taken place in God's plan of redemption or in God's plan of salvation. Just a little bit before, I know that's loud, it goes on and I see everybody. Whoa, it's like a tornado in here. (laughs) A February tornado. (laughs) It's loud. Bear with it. We want to keep you warm so you don't freeze in here. So, Jesus is just sharing with the Pharisees what had just recently taken place in redemptive history. Just before Jesus started talking to the Pharisees right here, a massive shift had taken place in redemptive history. Things had just recently progressed from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, the new covenant will not be fully established for a little while yet, but things have already moved from old covenant to the new covenant. Things had shifted from what you might call the period of promise to the period of fulfillment. The period of promise, or the, the, the old covenant, the, the period of, of promise, that, that the first major period in redemptive history started way back at the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and ran all the way up to John the Baptist, who ministered during the early part of Jesus' life. And, and that long period of promise contained lots of different things. It contained the calling of Abraham. It contained the formation of the people of Israel. Uh, all, it contained all of the Old Testament prophets. And one of the important things that took place during the period of promise, the main thing that Jesus is trying to highlight here, I believe, was the giving of the Old Testament law. 
which you can find in the first five books of the Old Testament. The period of promise, or the period of the law and the prophets, as Jesus says. The Old Covenant. And people call it the period of promise. Why? Because during that first major part of redemptive history, God was making all kinds of promises. He was making all kinds of promises about a future Messiah, a Savior, the ultimate King in His kingdom who, who would one day come and, and would redeem and save a people for God's own possession. That was the period of promise, the period of the law and the prophets. But when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees right here, <laughs> things had just recently shifted. A massive shift had taken place from the old to the new, from the period of promise to the period of fulfillment. And why? Because the Messiah was here. Because the Messiah was now here. The, the, the Savior, the ultimate king in God's kingdom, who had come to redeem a people for God's own possession. The Messiah was here. And now, everything that God had promised in that period of promise, all of it would now be fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And man, so this period of fulfillment has begun. And, and, and this good news about the Messiah, this good news about the King and, 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 and God's kingdom which had come to earth in the person of Jesus, that good news gospel message was now being proclaimed all over Israel through Jesus and His disciples. Remember one of the first things Jesus said when he started preaching was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come on, enter the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom was now being proclaimed. And the people who, who were, were, were receiving that gospel message, those people who were believing that gospel message, they were entering the kingdom of God. And so, so Jesus just kind of lays all that out here for the Pharisees. Hang with Jesus for a second. Luke 16, I'm sorry, look at verse 16 again. Here, so here's what he said. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. That's the period of promise. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached here in the period of fulfillment. And everyone forces his way into it. And I think, I think, I think that last phrase there, everyone forces his way into the kingdom, I think that was probably just Jesus' way of saying that the people who were hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, they were giving up everything with joy and running to enter the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus. They were joyfully forcing their way through the narrow door into the kingdom of God. People like the tax collectors and sinners in Israel, the Gentiles, were entering the kingdom through Christ. So, all right, <laughs> there it is. Now, one of the many $60 million questions here, I think, in this text, why? Why does Jesus lay all those things out right there for these self-righteous Pharisees? Why does, why, why does Jesus do it? I think Jesus wants to make a point with them primarily about the law of God. 
Now, Jesus just talked about this massive shift in redemptive history from the law and the prophets to the good news of the kingdom. But then look again at what he says there in verse 17. But, but, even though there's been this massive shift away from the law and prophets, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. I think Jesus wants that word law to be ringing in their ears. Law, not void. I think Jesus is making a point with them about the law of God. And here's the point, I believe, Pharisees, even though there's been this amazing shift in redemptive history, the law of God has not become void. No, every last bit of God's Old Testament law, all of the rules and regulations, even the smallest dot in the law, even the smallest dotted I of the law, the smallest cross T of the law, every last bit of God's Old Testament law, it is all still valid and in force. And it must all still be fulfilled. It must all still be obeyed by people like you, Pharisees. As Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, do you think I came to abolish the law? No. I did not come to abolish the law. Jesus is making a point there about the continued validity, the continued force of the Old Testament law from the period of promise into the period of fulfillment to the ends of the heavens and the earth. Pharisees, the law of God has not become void. It must all still be fulfilled. It must all still be obeyed, every last bit of it. And why would Jesus make that point right there with these self-righteous Pharisees? I think Jesus wants these men to see their sin. I think Jesus wants these men to see their sin. The Pharisees believed that they were righteous people. Right with God. In a right standing with God on the basis of their good works. They had convinced themselves, they had convinced most of the people in Israel that they were righteous. They were highly exalted among all men in Israel, but it wasn't a true righteousness. It was a self-righteousness. And what does Jesus Christ do with self-righteous, arrogant, puffed-up people in the Bible, those who believe they are somehow pleasing to God because of the works of their own flesh, those who have worked to establish their own righteousness, and are convinced that they have actually achieved and established their own righteousness. What does Jesus do with self-righteous people in the Bible? He constantly points them to the law of God. He does it all over the place. Whenever Jesus is approached 
in the Bible by brokenhearted, humble people, brokenhearted tax collectors, brokenhearted sinners, people who know that they are unrighteous, people who, who are genuinely seeking the way to heaven. Jesus gives them grace. He preaches the good news of the gospel to them. Just trust in me and be saved. But whenever Jesus is approached by hard-hearted, proud people who think they are already righteous and are doing enough in and of themselves to enter heaven, He gives them law. He points them to the law of God. Luke 18, you think you're righteous, rich, young ruler? What does the law say? Luke chapter 10, you think you're righteous, lawyer? What does the law say? Jesus is constantly pointing self-righteous people to the law, to the commands, to the demands of the Old Testament law. And Jesus is doing it again right there, I believe. Why in the world would he just pull a statement out of thin air about the law? Because the Pharisees are self-righteous. You think you're righteous, Pharisees? What does the law say? Gospel to those who know they are unrighteous but law to the self-righteous. And man, why, why, why does Jesus do this? Why, do, why, why does Jesus constantly point proud, self-righteous people like the Pharisees to the law? Because it is God's law that reveals our sin. And, God, and Jesus wants these Pharisees to see their sin. The law of God is the thing that shows you that you're a sinner it's, it's the thing that shows you that you're a sinner. The law, the law of God is the thing that strips away your self-righteous veneer. And it shows you that underneath, in the heart, you are actually unrighteous. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law of God is the thing that shows you your sin. In James chapter 1, the law is compared to a mirror. And then what do you do with a mirror? You look into it to see who you really are. And that's the law of God. You can think you're a pretty decent person in and of yourself in this life until you stare into the mirror of God's law. Until you look into the commands of His law, the demands of His law, what He demands of you, you can think you're a good person until you actually begin to stare into that. You can think you're pretty righteous and pleasing to God because of your good works. But once you genuinely catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror of God's holy law, you instantly see your sin. If the Holy Spirit is working on your heart and if He has turned the light bulbs on for you, you see your sin and you know instantly that you are not a righteous person, but actually very unrighteous. Because as you stare into the law and you finally see it, you realize that the law is looking at you and pronouncing that verdict over you. 
unrighteous. And why does the law do that and look at human beings and pronounce that verdict of unrighteous over them? Because the law demands absolute perfection from you. It demands absolute perfection from you. In order to be righteous and good and and pleasing in God's sight on the basis of your works, your works must be perfect. Complete and total obedience to every single dot of God's law. And And God's law ultimately comes down to love. So you must love God and love your neighbor perfectly. And man, once you finally catch a glimpse of yourself in light of the perfection that God's law demands, you see your sin and you know you're not righteous, you are unrighteous. A little girl saw a white sheep walking across a green field. And she said, look, mommy, look at how clean that sheep looks in that green field. And then it began to snow. And the little girl then said, Look, Mommy, look at how dirty that sheep looks in that white field. Same sheep, different background. And it was the background that made all the difference. That's how it is with God's law. You you can think you're a pretty clean person when you're walking out across the green field of this world away from God's law. But once it begins to snow in your life, once God begins to bring His holy law into your life, and you finally see yourself against the blinding white background of God's holy and perfect law, all of a sudden you see your filth. I think Jesus points these self-righteous Pharisees to the law right there because He wants them to see their filth. And I believe that right there. Because Jesus wants these men to see their sin, I think that right there is why Jesus finishes the passage the way He does here. Look at verse 18. Man, now you talk about something (laughs) that appears to come out of left field. Here it is. All of a sudden, he seems to be talking about an entirely different subject again. Hey, Pharisees, I've got an idea. Why don't we just switch the topic and we'll talk about marriage and divorce here for a second. Is that okay? Do a little marriage counseling with you guys. That's fine just before you leave. Look at it. Jesus says to the Pharisees, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband, commits adultery. What in the world? I mean, Jesus seems to change subjects faster than children around my table. But listen, I do not believe Jesus is changing subjects right there. You know what Jesus just did right there? Jesus just gave the Pharisees one example. He gave them one example of Old Testament law that was still valid. God's Old Testament laws on marriage and divorce. 
And, and why did Jesus just do it, just give these Pharisees that one example of valid Old Testament law there? I think he wants them to see their sin. I don't think Jesus is primarily concerned here with just giving these Pharisees a nice little lesson about marriage and divorce. No, I think Jesus was pointing them to the Old Testament laws of marriage and divorce primarily because he wanted them to see their sin. Philip Ryken says that Jesus pointed them to those particular Old Testament laws here because those were some of the very laws that the Pharisees were obviously failing to keep. Man, the Pharisees, in Jesus' day, they were not keeping the law of God. Man, they prided themselves in the law. They thought they were keeping the law. But they had come up with all of these rabbinic traditions. And you know what Jesus says about the, those rabbinic traditions in Matthew 15? He says, with your rabbinic traditions, you have made the law void. Void. They had voided parts of the law with their rabbinic rules. And one of the areas where they were failing miserably was marriage and divorce. They had absolutely butchered God's Old Testament laws on marriage and divorce. I do not have time to go into everything the Old Testament teaches about marriage and divorce. I do not have time to go into everything the New Testament teaches on marriage and divorce for that matter. If you write me an email after this sermon complaining that I did not cover marriage from cover to cover, I will not read it, so don't do it. Can't do it. Let me just say this about marriage and divorce and what the Pharisees had done with it here. In God's Old Testament law, marriage is a very sacred thing. A sacred covenant, please hear me, between one man and one woman. A covenant that God intended to last for one's entire life. Divorce was not a part of God's original plan for man and woman. But because of the sin that entered the world in the Garden of Eden, and because that sin absolutely rocked all of mankind, and because relationships were seriously damaged by that sin, and because of a, a new hard-heartedness in mankind because of that sin, God's Old Testament law permitted divorce in some narrow circumstances. Just a few circumstances where divorce would have been seen as permissible. And it still wasn't required in those circumstances. It was just per permissible according to God's law. But the Pharisees had absolutely butchered God's Old Testament laws on marriage and divorce. Now listen to this. The Pharisees not only divorced their own wives for just about any reason under the sun, they also taught others in Israel that they could divorce their wives for just about any reason under the sun. Just listen to this. This is a Pharisaical rabbinic teaching from the Mishnah 
from this, roughly this time period, this is how they interpreted God's Old Testament laws about marriage and divorce. You ready for this? The school of Hillel says, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. Even if she burnt his supper. And Rabbi Akiba says, a man may divorce his wife even if he has found another fairer than her. Found someone more beautiful than her. You're free to divorce your wife. You know what that sounds like? America. And I'll just say it, it sounds like the American church. These, the, these men were absolutely butchering God's law across the board with their traditions. God's law, marriage and divorce, God's law never said a man could divorce his wife for ridiculous reasons like that. Never. And then, after a divorce, after any divorce for any reason at all, the Pharisees just assumed that a person then had the right to remarry anyone. The Mishnah says this. The Mishnah says that on every certificate of divorce that was given to a divorced woman, these words should be written. Lo, thou art free to marry any man. In first century Israel, divorce and remarriage were pretty rampant, widely accepted, widely practiced. And that included the Pharisees. So Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament law, which he just said was still valid. He looks at these Pharisees and he says in very stark black and white terms, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And there were probably quite a few Pharisees standing in front of him that day that had done those very things. And if they hadn't done it, well, they had probably taught it. Clear violations of God's Old Testament law. Now, if you look at all of the New Testament teachings on marriage and divorce, if, if you look at all of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 19, if you look at Paul's teachings in the New Testament, the Bible does appear to give a couple of exceptions to what Jesus just said right there, just like the Old Testament did um, give a couple of exceptions when divorce and remarriage was permitted. But listen, I do not think Jesus is concerned right here with talking about any exceptions with anybody. Because the Pharisees have taken the rules and gone crazy with them. And he is bringing it all the way back with the Pharisees. And why does Jesus do this right here with them, laying these marriage and divorce laws smack dab in front of these men? I think he wants them to see their sin and unrighteousness. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
That's what God does with self-righteous people. You know, when God goes after a self-righteous Pharisee, either in these days or, or in our day, when, when He does it, God does not typically point that person to the gospel first. Oh, just, 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 just believe and be saved? No. God typically points that self-righteous Pharisee to the law. Do it or die. Do all of it or face it eternal consequences. He, he doesn't typically whisper the gospel good news in that person's ear. No, he typically thunders with law. He takes you to Mount Sinai, and he begins to terrify you with the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments you just had on your wall your whole life and never even cared about, and all of a sudden, he begins to pierce your heart with them. And you hear him whisper to you, you have not kept these. He shows you your sin. He shows you that, that you are a lawbreaker who deserves his eternal wrath. When God goes after a self-righteous Pharisee, he first uses his law to strip away that self-righteous garment and reveal to that person that deep down inside in the heart, he or she is unrighteous. But you know what that is when God does that? When God hammers the law on your heart and begins to terrify you with this law, you know what that's called? That's called love. That's called love. You ever heard the phrase tough love? There it is. God created it. That's tough love when God does that. Because see what happens when He comes down and He terrifies you and He strips away this garment of self-righteousness and He basically just explodes you and shows you you're unrighteous. You know what He just did? He just prepared you for a Savior. He just prepared your heart to hear gospel and to really love gospel. Do you know why more people don't appreciate gospel in this world? Because their hearts have not been crushed with law. There are too many people who will not preach the law of God from pulpits. And when that happens, people don't need a Savior. Charles Spurgeon said that the gospel, the good news message about Jesus Christ, it was a beautiful red thread, beautiful, beautiful thread. But he said that thread had to be pulled into your heart by a piercing needle. And the piercing needle was God's law. It comes and pierces and shows you your sin so that God can then pull the gospel in and you will love it at that point. Receive it with joy. Man, that's the last thing I think Jesus probably wants us to consider here. Self-righteousness, unrighteousness, and number three, very quickly, Christ-righteousness. Man, why, why did Jesus bring the law down on those self-righteous Pharisees? He wants to show them their sin, and he wants to show them that they need a Savior. You know what the law of God does? <laughs> The law of God points you to, and it drives you to Christ. 
Galatians 3.24, the law is a guardian that brings you or leads you to Christ. God terrifies you with His law to drive you to Christ. But once you get to Christ, once you know that you are an unrighteous sinner in desperate need of a Savior, once you're there, God then whispers the gospel to you. And do you know what He says? Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled all of it. Matthew 5, 17. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And Jesus did fulfill them. (laughs) All of them. Do you realize that Jesus even fulfilled God's Old Testament law about marriage and divorce. You realize that? Jesus has a wife, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church. And Jesus has always loved his bride perfectly. And he still does. And Jesus will never, ever, ever divorce his bride, ever. He fulfilled that part of God's law. You know, it's possible you're sitting here today and you have a divorce in your past. You know it wasn't pleasing in God's eyes. You didn't divorce for biblical reasons. You know it, and you felt guilty down inside for years. And if that's you, and please hear this, there's forgiveness for you in Christ. There's forgiveness for you in Christ. Because Christ fulfilled the law, even the laws concerning marriage and divorce. And you know what? That's actually really good news for all of us who have ever been married. You know why? Because none of us have fulfilled God's laws on marriage and divorce. If you are sitting here today thinking that you have fulfilled God's Old Testament laws concerning marriage and divorce, then you are deceived in that area of your life. You do not see God's law yet in that area of your life. That is a pocket of self-righteousness in you. Because do you know what God requires of you in your marriage with your spouse? Love. Perfect love. And not one of us has done that. We have all failed in that area. It's really good news that Jesus did not fail. That he fulfilled that part of God's law. And fulfilled every last other part of God's law. Christ didn't fail. Christ is the only person who produced a perfect righteousness of his own. And the crazy thing is that God will actually give it to you. God will credit it to you or impute it to you if you will simply cling to Christ in faith. 
The second you do that, you're forgiven for all your sins, even for your sins in marriage and divorce. You have a clean heart. And now you have a God-given righteousness, a true, deep, down, through, and through righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. From self-righteousness to righteousness to unrighteousness to Christ-righteousness. And I just pray, pray that God would help all of us to hear the thundering of His law so that we might run terrified to Christ who is our refuge and our strong tower and our rock, the one who takes the wrath of the law in our place. May we cling to Christ, and when the last trumpet sounds, we will then be found dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord. Law is not comfortable for us not comfortable to talk about, not comfortable to think about, not comfortable to be crushed by. But Father, we believe your law is good and necessary and right. Your law is holy in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with your law, Lord. It's, it's hard for us because we're sinners. Lord, we thank you for it, and we thank you for its purpose to, to bring us to Christ, guardian, carrying us, driving us to Christ. I just pray you do it today. Pray, Father, for Anyone in here who does not genuinely cling to Christ, I do pray, Father, right now, you would bring the thunder of your law and cause them to run to Christ. I do pray, Father, for prodigals in our families, Lord God, those who are far, far away from you, maybe even those who are living in self-righteousness, believing they are right with you and they're not. I pray, Father, you'd bring the thunders of your law. And you'd cause self-righteous sinners to see their unrighteousness and run and cling to Christ and be clothed in His righteousness. We thank you for the gift of Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.